0: Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Good morning, everybody. You know, I always, uh, I really appreciate what Dave had to say earlier today about Memorial Day, and just wanna say that I I always wonder, what what do you say, happy Memorial Day? How do you, what what do you say exactly on Monday? So I wanna wish you all a meaningful Memorial Day. Um, That's a nice, I think easy way, but also I think hopefully a meaningful, haha, way to um, express um, what we should be celebrating on Memorial Day. I'm gonna start off a little bit on the gloomy side. I hope you don't mind. Um, It gets brighter, I I promise. but uh, we're talking, I wanted to speak with you about a question I think all of us actually have, regardless of what level of faith you might be experiencing. Whether you're a person who has literally no faith and you've walked in here because someone invited you and for some reason you thought spending your Sunday morning sleeping in was just not as good as an idea of coming into a crowded place with people you don't know. And you decided to come here and you're like, I wanna see what this church thing's about. Maybe you have literally n- no faith whatsoever. Um, in anything transcendent, or you're somebody who's been coming to church for years, decades, and for whatever reason, you can remember those times in your life, and maybe it was even last night, where you thought, what are you doing? Where are you? I have no idea what this circumstance is supposed to teach me, if anything. And now I'm starting to wonder, do you teach at all? I think if you're honest, there's times when you feel that way. I think that if I'm honest, there's times when I've felt the, the question rise up in me. I've never really doubted God's existence, but I have said, I don't get you. Um, plenty of times. Or where are you? Or why aren't you doing something right now? I could use you right now. Now would be great. Um, plenty of us have felt that way. So I want to uh, share with you an opening uh, sort of illustration. It comes from a book. It's a gloomy book. Then the, the, the title of the book is Gloomy. That's a Pulitzer Prize winning book and it's by Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel is a Holocaust survivor and uh, he wrote this book decades ago and it's called Night. And it's all about the perpetual night that his life took on after his arrival at Auschwitz when he, he and his father and his mother and his sister were brought to the death camps and then they were separated and he never saw his mother and sister ever again after that first night. And he was a child when he was sent there. And, he recounts his horrible experiences there. And he was a man of deep conviction, deep, strong faith in God. Uh, As a Jewish man, he had a strong belief that there was a God who actually loves and cares for the world and all these things. But then that whole thing started to erode away as he saw that man's inhumanity to man. And he saw the way sin was perpetuating in the world. And he was wondering, uh, if there is a God who actually cares about humanity, how come he hasn't done something about human sin? What's going on here? And so he recounts this Episode. This, this, this short, brief episode, it was, in, uh, ep- it was illustrative of all of the things that had gone on in the course of the time he was at Auschwitz, and it was a hanging. A bunch of people were being hanged publicly in front of all of the prisoners there in Auschwitz, and among them was a young boy. Now pardon me if I get a little on the graphic side for you. but. How hanging works is is that when you're up there and they kick the thing out from underneath you, the sheer weight of your body basically kills you when your neck is snapped because of the, the gallows. You rarely ever really strangle to death. It happens right away. But there was a young boy up there whose weight did not cause an instant death. Instead, he struggled, and he struggled, and he struggled. And all of the people, all the men in the camp, because they were segregated between men and women, had to watch this happen, had to watch this young boy and this is what he wrote. He said, where is God? Where is he? Someone behind me asked. For more than half an hour, the child in the news stayed there, struggling between life and death, dying in slow agony under our eyes. And we had to look him full in the face. He was still alive when I passed in front of him. His tongue was still red. His eyes were not yet glazed. Behind me, I heard the same man asking, where is God now? And I heard a voice within me answer him. Where is he? Here he is. He is hanging here on this gallows. In other words, for Wiesel, God was dead. He didn't, if you read the story, you didn't realize that Elie Wiesel didn't stop believing that God existed. He just stopped believing that God cared. And so he asked this question, where is he? Where is he? And he sees this young boy struggling for life on this gallows and he says, there's my God. My God is now dead. (laughs) <laughs> when we're honest, we have to ask that question, but I wanna address this question from two aspects, if you'll let me do this in the time we have. The first aspect is this, is that There's an intellectual aspect to this because people ask the question, why does God seem so hidden? If he cares about us and if he loves us and if he wants us to believe in him, he would make the evidence more obvious. He would be so obvious that it would be undeniable that he exists and that way the maximum number of people could possibly believe in him and that seems to be the kind of God we would want to believe in. And so if he existed, he would make himself more evident because he's not evident, maybe he doesn't exist at all. That's the first part, that's the intellectual issue. But I do wanna get from that to the existential issue. And the existential issue is in those times in the night, when you have your own night, whatever your version of night might be, you wonder, where is he? Where is he? Is he in the gallows as well? We have to get to the intellectual first. Let me get there first, and then we're gonna get to the application, if you don't mind. Now, if I think about this, this idea that God is hidden, that he doesn't provide enough evidence for his existence, the first thing I wanna point out is this, is that if there's someone who is saying, I would believe in God if he had just given me more evidence, uh, and he hasn't given me enough, and therefore I'm justified in not believing in him, the burden of proof is on the person who makes the claim that there isn't enough evidence. Now, I know that sounds odd because typically what you'll say is like, no, 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 you're saying he exists. You have to give me evidence. I'm an atheist and, an, and I'm not, but I'm saying if I'm, if I'm an atheist, I would say, wait, I'm an atheist because there's not enough proof. You haven't given me enough. You haven't met your burden of proving that this magical, invisible, no one can hear him. No one ever seen him being exists. And so you had a burden of proof. I get that. If you're Making the claim that God exists, you have a burden of proving that. But if you're also making the claim that there's not enough evidence, then you have to describe what evidence actually is. You have to decide what kind of evidence would actually matter to you. What would actually cause you to say that's enough? Does it have to be complete? Does it have to be irrefutable? Or can it be reasonable? I can tell you as a lawyer, we almost do nothing in a court of law based on certainty. There is no standard of proof within a court of law where you say you have to prove that beyond all possible doubt that doesn't exist. Because anybody can doubt anything at any time in any way they want to because people are people. You have to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt. And so if you're looking for certainty in this world, and how I define certainty is this. Certainty is betting your life against a donut and thinking you have the infinitely better bargain. Do you get what I'm saying here? That you're so certain this is true, that you're willing to stake your life on the fact that if you're wrong, you die, but if you win, you get a donut. That's the kind of thing we're t- and no one has that level of certainty about anything except for the fact that you think, or that you exist. Everything is based on a reasonable amount of understanding of the world. So if you're someone, who is saying there's not enough evidence, there's a couple of things that you have a burden of proving, or at least coming to grips with. First of all, if you say there's not enough evidence that, there, uh, that uh, it's not obvious enough that God exists, you'd have to do a couple of things. First, you'd have to show that you've looked everywhere and that there is no evidence anywhere or not enough evidence anywhere. Now that presumes exhaustive knowledge. So yeah, I want you to hear this now. So God, in the classical definition, not just the Christian definition, but the classical definition of God would be a being who knows and has exhaustive knowledge of all things that are true. So if you can claim that there is not enough evidence anywhere in this world where I can look for a God to exist, then you claim to have exhaustive knowledge of the entire universe. And if you claim to have exhaustive knowledge of the entire universe, you can't use your exhaustive knowledge to disprove the existence of a being who has exhaustive knowledge because you think you're him. So, what you have to, so that isn't open to you. Rather, it's the second part. It's this, we should expect more evidence for God's existence than we currently have. And that's where the debate actually is. We should expect there to be more, given the kind of God you're talking about, the Christians talk about a God who loves the world. And that's where the real discussion is. So a couple of responses to this. Uh, to think through, just for you to consider and think through, especially in those nights, in the middle of those nights we have. First of all, is God merely interested in us believing that he exists? Is that his main goal, to convince you that he exists? That's a necessary but an insufficient condition for actual belief. Intellectual assent is not enough. So you know, give you an example of this, if it were the case that I intellectually assented that there is some woman out there whose, whose genes I bear half of and she gave birth to me, is that enough that, yep, someone gave birth to me? Or is there a difference, a qualitative difference between me assenting that someone gave birth to me and me knowing that woman? There is a fundamental difference. God is not interested simply in you acknowledging that he exists and he created everything. So what? James chapter two tells us that even the demons believe and they shudder. So what? God is not interested in your intellectual assent. He's interested in your trust. Now the first part is important though. You can't trust that a being who doesn't actually exist and you can't trust a being you don't know actually exists. So we do have to talk about, is there good reasons for us to believe? Is there ample evidence? But I want you to understand something that uniquely speaking in the Christian faith, you don't have a God who says, here's a bunch of rules. Maybe I made them, maybe a bunch of guys made them up and then used me to basically sort of, sort of justify their rulemaking. No, the chief end of man is to enjoy God, glorify God, and delight in his presence forever there is that relational aspect to it. And what's uniquely propagated in the Christian faith is the idea that you and I are made for relationship with the divine. And the fact is that the, the Christian conception of God is not just a being who creates everything, but a being who exists eternally in relationship in the community of the Trinity from eternity. One God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the persons not being the same, but all sharing the same nature, a being who exists in relationship. And so that explains why you and I crave relationship, which is why, by the way, you ask the question, where are you? Because you're asking about, do you care? That question is a relational question. It's not an intellectual question. It's a relational question. And the fact that you yearn for connection with something transcendent makes sense in the Christian faith because you are created by a being who defines relationship within himself. No other religious system tells you that. And so that makes sense of why you ask the question, are you there? Are you there? But to get us there, we have to answer the question, are you there? Now, there's a couple of things I wanna make sure we understand here. That there is no reason to believe, really, that the evidence we have isn't enough. There's no real reason to believe that. You know, I've given this illustration before. I think I've given this illustration from this very stage before. So pardon me if you've heard this, but I think it's worthy of repeating, is um, sometimes people have enough evidence, but they just don't want it. So I was sitting uh, in my office. There was a guy uh, who uh, I was uh, a colleague of and he would come in, he's an atheist guy, great guy by the way, funny, uh, just a wonderful guy. We had a great relationship. He would come in every so often and give me a little zinger. He liked these little zingers he would give me. And uh, the zinger he gave me this particular day was, hey, I heard that God, this God you claim is so loving and and loves all people, let the roof of a church drop on a bunch of his followers the other day while they were worshiping him. That's some God you, you believe in. And he walked out like, whoa, 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 no, no. That's too many times now. You, there's a tax to this now, you have to sit down and listen to me. That's the tax for you, you know, making a comment to me. So we sat down and we had a conversation and I, I said, hey man, what, what would qualify as enough? What would be enough evidence for you? And he said, I'll tell you what, if there was a huge golden glowing cross in the sky that everyone in the world could see, and every morning when everybody woke up, they heard John 3.16 emanating from that cross, that would be the kind of evidence that would convince me. By the way, it's the kind of evidence I would expect God to give to the world if he wants them to believe in him so much. So really, that would do it? Yeah, that would do it. Said, so irrefutable evidence. Yeah. Okay, I said, so you're a smoker. This guy's a smoker, and I knew that, and he's about my age, so I know, You know, that when I was a teenager, it wasn't like it was up for grabs. No one was doubting the fact that smoking caused cancer and was addictive. No one doubted this. The evidence was obvious. So I said, hey man, when did you start smoking? And he said about 17 years old, which is you know interesting because all the evidence was there and he had the rational mind to be able to say, yep, I can assent that that's actually true. And he made, as an almost adult, legally, the decision to illegally smoke. I said, so let me ask you a question. You had all the evidence you needed, right? To know that smoking was harmful, it would kill you and it's addictive. Yeah. And you did it anyway? Yeah. I said, tell me again how evidence matters to you. Before I chide my friend a little too much, I wanna remind you of something. It took me nine years to become a Christian. I found all the answers I needed sufficient to believe within in two years. I wrestled with them because like him, I didn't want it to be true for seven years. Everybody at some point looks evidence in the face and says, I'd rather not. I can tell you I did for a long time. And no one's immune from it. But this proceeds from a faulty assumption. It makes the assumption that God is the kind of being that we would be able to understand if we just had more information. I want you to think about what we're talking about. When we speak of God, what we're speaking about is a being who is the necessary being without which nothing would exist okay? I don't mean he is a being among beings. We don't believe in like the the, the gods of the ancient Greeks or the ancient Babylonians, gods that sort of emerged from this ever-present ether. There's this sort of nebulous cloud that exists eternally, and the gods and the titans sort of emerge from it because they're contingent. They require something else to explain their existence. No, we're talking about a god who is personal and eternal and is the source of all things. And so that is the god we're talking about. About. Now I want you to consider yourself, what you are, and ask yourself, given what you and I are, these limited human beings, and given the def- definition of what God actually is, how do we possibly think that we could have the kind of capacity in our minds to consider all the things that this God is doing at any particular moment, the God who is the creator of every single thing that ever exists and ever will exist, and you think that you wouldn't go mad if you were given all the information possible. We would go nuts, we would lose it. That's why the Bible actually says, you can't behold my glory lest you die. We're not even capable of this. And someone might say, well, here's the problem though. Why couldn't God make us capable of it? He's all powerful, isn't he? Why couldn't he just make us capable of understanding him? Now you're asking for what's called a logical impossibility because there are some things, believe it or not, this might be controversial and it might give me some emails and that's okay. I'll get them. I get them all the time. Um, There are some things God can't do. A hush comes over the room. Uh, One of those things is he can't do that which is logically impossible given his nature. Like God is not a liar. I want you to hear this now, God cannot lie. Do you know why God cannot lie? Because there's no lie in him. He is pure truth and goodness. And therefore he can't be evil. You can, because evil is just a lack of good. It's the privation, or it's the the parasitic effect of human nature on good. God has no such parasitic effect. And so he's just good. He can't make square circles because by definition a circle has no corners and squares by definition have four can't do that. What God cannot also do is create a being just like him. The reason he can't create a being just like him is because he's uncreated. And by definition, you can't be an uncreated, created thing. You also can't be the kind of being who knows every single thing and never requires anyone to teach you something if you're created because you don't know what eternity feels like. So the whole idea that God could create beings who are like him just doesn't make any sense. Now consider this, if God made angels, those who were in his unmitigated presence, and they, as the Bible says, long to look into some things, they don't have enough information to know every single thing. What makes us think that God who dips his finger into humanity, and we see but a sliver of what he actually is, what makes us think that we could possibly know these things? And say, where are you, God? There's not enough evidence. Maybe there's enough evidence and you can't handle more. And I can't handle more. Maybe that's, maybe that's the possibility here. Maybe there's sufficient but not complete because we're just incapable of understanding all that is possible. But the evidence is actually enough. Now, I want to point this out. I talked about reasonable doubt and enough reason to believe in something. Okay, that's true. We have enough reason to believe that God exists, but we don't have sufficient proof in the certain sense that everything uh, around us sort of screams that you know God exists, God exists, it's obvious, and there's no way you can possibly deny it, even though the Bible says that what is made uh, plain to us in, in creation shows that God by his divine power created all this stuff. We are, we are without excuse because we have enough information. But Blaise Pascal, Blaise Pascal was a theologian, and a Christian and a scientist. One of the fathers of modern computer language, way, 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 way back. And he wrote a series of reflections called Pensées. Pensees are just like thoughts or thinking. And he basically said this, is that God has put enough evidence into this world that belief in him is the most rational thing, but he has left enough evidence out that trusting him on pure reason is impossible. I think it's important for us. Now there's a wonderful book called Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't by Gavin Ortland. And you know he, he wrestled with this idea of God's hiddenness, like why isn't God more obvious? And this is what he says. He says, the truth must be difficult. The truth must by definition be difficult. It must produce angst. It's gotta produce some level of anxiety in us that wants us to get us to another place. He's paraphrasing Pascal, and he says, God has arranged things this way because certainty is not our main problem. Sorry. He says, God has arranged things this way because certainty is not our main need, just as ignorance is not our main problem. Wow. True. Certainty is not our main need, just as ignorance is not our main problem. This is what Ortland says. Those who feel trapped by uncertainty, as I did in college, must ask themselves if they are quite certain about their need for certainty. For ultimately, the demand for certainty springs from the assumption that we know what we need and what we want, but do we? Has it most happiness and truth already come to us through experiences that involve surprise, surrender, and risk? Perhaps certainty is overrated. I want you to hear what he's saying, okay? This is very important. This is one of the the linchpins of my whole uh, argument to you this morning. He says this, Hasn't most happiness and truth already come to us through experiences that involve surprise, surrender, and risk? I want you to think of the times you didn't know what was going to happen, and then the elation you had when you found out something wonderful was in the works. Whether it was surprise for your 50th birthday, or a wedding anniversary, or something that happened. Maybe you didn't know the outcome of your test, or you didn't know uh, whether it's medical or otherwise. Whether it was something you were studying For whatever it was, and you knew you had had enough reasons to believe this might go well, but you had that fear, you had that trepidation, you had that uncertainty that maybe it's not gonna go as well as you might think, or maybe she won't say yes when you pop the question, or maybe a bunch of different things, and then you're suddenly surprised. Think of the delight you have in the lack of certainty, and then suddenly the knowledge that it's all working out. Now, not everything works out and I get that and I appreciate that, but how many things in your life were the delights of your heart because you didn't know what was gonna happen because you weren't certain about the future and then suddenly God gives you this blessing, something comes along in your life and it wakes you up. Think of the joy if you had known ahead of time. Maybe you've had that experience where the surprise party was coming and you found out a little early. Maybe you hate surprises and you're great great with that, but maybe you're the kind of person who likes surprises and you're terribly disappointed because you knew it was coming. Not everything is great when you're certain about the outcome. Not everything is great. I can tell you with personal experience, my wife and I, a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, got terrible news that she had five tumors on her liver. That's uncertainty. The unexpressible joy, and I say this with caution because I know that many of us have prayed for this kind of thing, but the unexpressible joy that comes when you hear that news and then you hear the counter news weeks later where the doctor shows you the MRI and there's not one tumor there. There's a delight in discovery. Maybe God doesn't go give us every single thing we need because he wants you to engage in the delight of discovery. Proverbs chapter 25, verses 2 to 3. You see them there on the screen. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out as the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but it is the glory of kings to search things out. I want you to notice something about this, is that God isn't hiding things so that you never discover them. God is hiding things so that you can engage in the joy of discovery. Think about a time you've struggled with something, whether it's trying to figure out why my checkbook isn't balancing. Maybe it's you're studying for an exam and you're not getting how to conjugate this particular verb in some obscure language no one's ever gonna have you say in the first place anyway. Who knows what it is you're you're struggling with and then you get that almost uh, neurochemical reaction where you get it. You ever felt that where you got it and suddenly you have a physical reaction to getting it? There's a delight in this discovery. There's a delight in finding out the truth. There's a delight in this. There's a delight in the process. Maybe God is not interested in robbing you of that by spoon-feeding you everything. Right. Maybe he wants you to delight in the God-given gifts he's given you of the intellect and the mind and the heart. And when all three converge, my goodness. My goodness, what an experience. If he gave you too much, you might be robbed of this. We do this with math math. We do this with our taxes. We do this with our checkbook. Can you imagine the delight of the discovery of the divine? Now it's interesting because you see evidence and the Bible actually speaks of something. And I'm I'm currently working on a book about the surprising ways that, that God actually reveals himself in the Bible to actually be the author of this Bible. Um, I've become fascinated the more and more I read the scriptures with how amazing the scriptures actually are. It happens to me all the time. I read something. I'm like, oh my goodness, look at that. I hope you've had that experience. I hope that it's the case that you don't think of your Bible reading as a chore to get through, but as an experience to enjoy. Um, I've had the blessing of seeing this happen over and over again. And sometimes there's things that I've read a thousand times and then a beautiful nugget of meat of, or a, a, a beautiful, like, almost like an effervescence of, of beauty comes out of these scriptures that could, oh my goodness, how could I didn't see that before? Now, I'm not saying personal, private interpretation of the scriptures that are plainly true. I'm not saying that. I'm saying discovering what's already in there, engaging in that delight of discovery. It is the glory of kings to search things out. What an amazing thing we get to do. So Hebrews chapter 11, verses one to three. Now I've said this uh, passage of scripture so many times, but, um, <clears throat> I want you to see something. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. People often think of faith as this blind thing, but it's not. The definition of faith is not belief without enough evidence. It is actually belief. It's not even belief. It's actually trust. Faith is just trust. Belief is requisite of trust, but it's an assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, someone might say, that, that's just blindness. No, we keep reading the passage. This is why the Bible just... I don't know, it floors me so often. For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. I want you to fully appreciate the sophistication of the cosmology in that sentence. Okay, cosmology is simply the, the, uh, the study of the origins of the universe. The sophistication in this sentence all by itself, For the longest time, scientists believed in what was called the steady-state theory, that the universe just always existed in the form it exists now. It's just an exchange of energy from one place to the other, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are a couple of troublemakers who come along the scene, Einstein and Hubble and all these guys, and they come along the scene, and they say, hey, look, we have, through our series of calculations and our theories and our observations of red and blue shifts, of different things out there, and the way light actually works, we think the universe actually had a beginning. When that beginning happened, that isn't the point, but the point is that they say, hey, we think this thing actually had a beginning. And that upends the entirety of the paradigm that the universe always existed. Now, if you understand the way the standard model of Big Bang cosmology actually works, is that the universe had a beginning and a finite point in the past. All time, matter, space, and energy began to exist. All these things began to exist. In other words, all the things that are visible started to exist, which means this. When they didn't exist, nothing was visible and everything began to exist. So the thing that made all visible things couldn't have been visible itself through the physical senses because there were no physical senses. And so all these things can't create themselves. That's absurd, but they were created. We know this, this is not something that's really all that up for debate. No one really decides that things can create themselves. That's the standard model that everyone agrees. They test it here and there, but they pretty much have settled on this in some form or fashion. And yet the scripture said this 2000 years ago, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. We just got there (laughs) and he's been saying it for 2000 years. Where is God? I can't see him. Look around, look around, you'll see him. You see this in Romans chapter one, look around and there he is. You don't always know what he's doing, but he's there. I think of Joseph Plunkett's um, poem. It's called, I See His Blood Upon the Rose. This poem goes like this. I see his blood upon the rose and in the stars, the glory of his eyes. His body gleams beneath eternal snows. His tears fall from the skies. I see his face in every flower. The thunder and the singing of the birds are but his voice and carven by his power. Rocks are his written words. All pathways by his feet are worn. His strong heart stirs the ever beating seas. His crown of thorns is laced with every thorn. His cross is every tree. You look at the universe, you look at the world around you, you look inside yourself and you see the evidence that none of this was an accident. The very mind you and I are using to question, where are you God? Is not the kind of thing that happens by accident. You would never trust a calculator or a computer or a phone that you thought was made by accident. Why would you trust your mind if it was? so much more sophisticated. So we see there's enough, enough reason to, 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 to see that maybe this God actually exists. And I think there's even more ample evidence to believe not only that he exists, but that he's done something in history through his cross and through the empty tomb. I don't have time to get into that necessarily, but I do wanna talk about the existential issue as I wrap it up. The existential issue, not the intellectual issue. The intellectual issue has to be dealt with so we can say, okay, that's one thing. Let me get to the existential issue is where is he? Why isn't he doing enough things? Is he really on the gallows? Is he there struggling under the weight of our suffering and choking to death right in front of us? You know, God allows for this kind of angst-driven question, you know, he allows for it. If you're feeling this question, This is not the kind of thing that you should feel shame about. It's very human. It's very biblical. In fact, so human is this question that it makes its way into the Psalms several times. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? God's hiddenness, where are you? How long must I take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But you know, the Psalms don't leave it there. David's writing this. It's not a good time for David. He's being chased. He's being pursued. He's got enemies. He doesn't know if he's gonna win. It's like, how is this part of your plan? I have no idea. But he says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will, not just now, but I will in the future, sing to the Lord because he has in the past dealt bountifully with me. You're allowed to ask the question. You're allowed, but David wants you to know, I think by the Holy Spirit, that you can trust in what God will do because of what God has already done. Pain can overwhelm our sense of this faith. I appreciate that. I know that. I know that personally. It can overwhelm it. We return to Elie Wiesel. And in his book, Night, he says this. On that first night when he got to the prison, the death camp, he said, never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke that is of the crematorium, Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Some talked of God, of his mysterious ways, of the sins of the Jewish people and of their future deliverance, but I had ceased to pray. How I sympathized with Job. I did not deny God's existence, but I doubted his absolute justice. You know, it's interesting when you read the book of Job, you come to the end of it. You know, Job suffers tremendously just tremendously. And his friends comfort him by not saying anything. And then they make him more upset by saying something for a long time. And finally, God's had it with these guys. and says, shut up now, I'm gonna talk. So that's enough. And Job's been questioning, but Job never lost his faith that God existed. He just never did. Even though his one- own wife urged him to give it up so he would just die. And at the end, God says to Job, he he appears to him out of a whirlwind, by the way, which is significant all by itself. He appears to him not in like a flower or a butterfly, out of a whirlwind, he comes with power to Job. And then he says, gird yourself like a man, because I'm gonna ask you some stuff now. Now, the thing to understand here is that we often think of this as that Job's being put in his place. And there's an element of truth to that but I actually think there's, there's, more, there's something else going on here. You see, God has entered into our world and he's basically gonna tell Job through a series of questions, Job, you are infinitely less than me. By definition, I can't make you like me. I can't, even angels who have unmitigated access to God are infinitely less than God. And so if you're a little higher of a being, You still don't have infinite access to infinite information. The the chasm is infinite. You can't get there. It would drive you mad. And so what God does when he asks his 60 plus questions to Job, is he's not saying, who do you think you are? Asking me questions. Who do you think you are, man? Were you there when I did this? Were you there when this happened? Were you there when I subdued this beast that you couldn't even possibly fathom how big it is? Were you there when the oceans were like this and the earth was like this and I hung the stars where they are? Were you there for any of that? That's one way to look at it. Or he might be saying this, and I think this is another way to look at it, an additional way to look at it. Not a a substitute, but an additional way. What if he's saying, Job, were you there when I put the, the constellations in their places? Were you there when I separated the land from the water? Were you there when I made their salty seas and fresh water? Were you there when I did all these things? You know the answer. The answer is no. So here's what I'm going to say to you. I was there. And all I'm going to do, Job, is ask you to trust me. Would you trust me? Maybe God is not so much scolding Job as he's giving him proper perspective so that he can comfort Job in saying, you can't handle everything that I know. And I can. And all I'm asking you to do is trust me. I did all these things that you know I did. Can you trust me with this one too? So maybe you have to ask yourself that question. Can you trust him? So we return to Elie Wiesel. And he's seeing the young boy in the gallows struggling. And death is there. And someone says, where is God? Where is God? And inside his voice he says, there he is. He's dying right in front of me. He's dying right in front of me. You know what the interesting irony is here, friends? He's almost right. He's almost there. Almost. His faith was wavered and shaken because he thought human sin shows that God is dead because he would have done something about human sin. But he died to do something about human sin. A God of the gallows. Not hanging by his neck, but hanging on a tree. Hanging on a cross. That death gives meaning to our suffering because it's a God who's not aloof from it. And you're saying, where are you? What are you doing? It's like, well, can you trust me in what I'm doing now because of what I already have done in the past? I did this for you. Were you there when I said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know what it really felt like for my son to say that, for me to hear it? Do you know what that was like? You don't. I do, and I did it for you. So can you trust me? Can you trust me with your suffering or your questions? I have shown myself trustworthy. You know, it's interesting that God seemed hidden for three days. Jesus was literally in a tomb, hidden away from the world for three days. I want you to think about the disciples and the anguish and the angst and the crushing disappointment they must have felt. See, they thought he was going to vanquish their Roman, their Roman occupiers. He thought you're going to restore the nation of Israel by vanquishing Rome, taking over, and all those years where we've been taken over and oppressed and repressed and all these things from Ezra to Nehemiah, which you hear about all summer, all these things, all these deliverances we had been brought from, all these exiles, it's all gonna come to an end now and you're the guy to do it. And then he dies at the hands of the Romans they thought would vanquish him, humiliating. And they didn't know what was going on for three whole days. They had to have asked, what are you doing? What is happening? Are, are, are you really the guy? You can't be, what does this all mean? But Sunday revealed something. That Sunday where he rose from the dead as a matter of actual history, by the way. That Sunday revealed something. That what they thought about how God would deliver people and what they thought he was doing, their thoughts were far too small. God wasn't bringing the sword to vanquish his enemies. He was bearing a cross so he could redeem his enemies, which included, by the way, the disciples and you and me. His ways are higher than our ways. He takes evil upon himself to deal with it. Not to sweep it away like the sword of Damocles or something. No. He cares far too much. He's stronger than that. He's bigger than that. If you're thinking, God, you would have done something by now in the way that I would like you to do, like in a Hollywood movie kind of a way, then your thinking is too small. Maybe the evidence is bigger than you think it actually is. Maybe you're just looking for the wrong kind. He brought a cross, not a sword. He doesn't vanquish Israel's enemies, but he redeems them through a power that is born of sacrifice. And so I think it's quite fitting that we sit here on the eve of a day when we remember sacrifice. James Stewart wrote this, and this is such a beautiful statement. It's a lengthy quote, but please, Bear with me because I think it's worthy of your attention. When he talks about the way God surprises us, that joy of surprise that Ortland was talking about, that the psalm seemed to suggest we'll get to after our anguish, that Proverbs actually mentions is the delight of our discovery. James Stewart wrote in a book called The Strong Name where he says, our our view of strength and our view of the evidence is so much limited by our desire for things to be done our way, that when it's done in a certain other way, it surprises us, it gives us delight. This is what he says about what the cross is all about. He says, the very triumph of his foes, he used for their defeat. He compelled their dark achievements to subserve his ends, not theirs. They nailed him to the tree, not knowing that by that very act, they were bringing the world to his feet. They gave him a cross, not guessing that he would make it a throne, They flung him outside the gates to die, not knowing that in that very moment, they were lifting up all the gates of the universe to let the king come in. They thought to root out his doctrines, not understanding that they were implanting imperishably in the hearts of men, the very name they intended to destroy. They thought they had God with his back to the wall, pinned and helpless and defeated. They did not know that it was God himself who had tracked them down he did not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquered through it. He conquers through it. He surprises us. He surprises us. The God who hung in the gallows for Elie Wiesel could not have died in terms of his love, his justice, and his power because his son died on the cross to satisfy God's justice and payment for sin. So he could feel the sorrow that you and I have felt and tell you through his love on that cross and the resurrection, that sorrow, justice and love, they converge at the crux of history, which is the cross itself. So I think about this last hymn by Frank Grath asking this question, where is God and does he care? Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song, as the burdens press and the cares distress and the grave goes weary and long? Does Jesus care when my way is dark with names dread and fear, as the daylight fades into deep nightshades, does he care enough to be near? Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong, when for my deep grief there is no relief, though my tears flow all night long? Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me, and my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks. Does he care enough? Does he see? Oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the day grows dreary, the long nights weary, I know my savior cares. Friends, I don't know where you are in your faith. I don't know what struggles you're going through even though your faith is strong. I don't know that. I don't pretend to know. I'd love to talk with you afterwards or any of the people who are who serve at this church, this wonderful place. I hope if you're a visitor, you'll come and talk to one of them or me or whoever else. Um, We want to know. We care because our Savior cares. And we have testimony about how he's done something miraculous in our lives and shown himself in those light, those long and weary and dreary days and nights. Friends, I hope that you're encouraged. I hope that you can see that if if you have a doubt of any kind that there is going to be an answer, even if the answer doesn't become crystal clear to you on the side of heaven. But there is enough. There is enough. There's nowhere else to go, friends. He alone has the word of life. And so I I ask you, consider Him. Whether you're new to the faith, whether you're not even in the family of faith just yet, consider Him. Consider Him. And if you've had a long faith, a history of faith, but you've also had a history of disappointments, Consider him. Consider him this day. I want to thank you all for giving me the time. God bless you all. I'm going to finish with a prayer, and then you're dismissed. Father, we are grateful, so very grateful, that um, you've woven sacrifice into the fabric of our existence, that you've given us The capacities of our minds and our souls to yearn for answers beyond simply what's in front of us. We don't, we aren't just like animals who are satisfied with uh, food to eat and the ability to propagate our species. We ask questions. You've given us a questioning mind. You've asked us to question you. You've invited us to do so. Lord, because there's a yearning in our hearts for answers beyond simply what's in front of us. I thank you, Lord, for the delight of discovering that there is more than what's just in front of us. I thank you, Lord, for those who are here who, ha- who are questioning or who have questioned and said, I don't get it. I don't get you. For those, Lord, who may have had a glimmer of hope today. Because there are answers. For those who are still searching, I thank you for them all. We thank you, Lord, that they have darkened the door of this place or they have joined us online. I pray, Lord, that those who don't know you come to know you. I pray, Lord, that those who do know you know you better yet. May we go in this day with a deep and serious understanding that though we might not see you, you are there and you do care. In the name of your precious Son, who felt that forsakenness, who asked you a question while he hung on a cross, who invites us to ask him questions about what it means to have hung on that cross. We pray in his name. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you.